I absolutely love Christmas. And uh, there are some who don't. The most famous one quoted in our message title today was Ebenezer Scrooge, who said, Bah humbug. It was that 1843 story by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. It's been put in movies ever since the book came out and television was available. But there's a scene in that story where Ebenezer Scrooge has just been visited by the ghost of Christmas past. It's an eerie and uncomfortable meeting that uh, Ebenezer Scrooge has with that ghost. But he wakes up the next day and he rationalizes what has happened. He was once touched and moved deeply, but the next day he wakes up and he says, Just a bit of last night's undigested beef. Bah, humbug. It's interesting how that Christmas brings out the inner Scrooge in some people. Still today, there are people who hate Christmas. I found a website called Bah, Humbug, I Hate Christmas. There's even a book out called I Hate Christmas, a manifesto for the modern-day Scrooge, written by Daniel Blythe. Here's a news article I wanted to share with you. It's called The Scrooge Finalists. We present our nominations for the Ebenezer Scrooge Awards, given just this once to those who best exemplify the seamy underside of the Christmas spirit. These are nominations only. There will be no winners, as will become appallingly obvious Everybody loses. Here's the first. For the worst performance by a Santa, the nominees are the Santa in sunglasses who held up a branch of Fidelity Bank in Westchester, Pennsylvania, while softly singing, We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. The elderly Santa in Lowell, Arkansas, who made off with cash from a convenience store, after threatening to pour hot coffee on the clerk. Next, for the worst treatment of a Santa, the nominees are, and I'll just read one, the boy from New Zealand whose letter to Santa contained a bomb threat. Either Santa brings him the computer or the chimney goes kaboom. For the best or worst performance by a Grinch, depending on how you look at it, the nominees are... Whoever took the nativity set from Ann Webb's front yard in Pine Top, North Carolina. The only thing left was the North Star still hanging from a pine tree. And the man described as a wino who chopped down the Hernandez family live Christmas tree in front of their house in Inglewood, California, and sold it to an unsuspecting neighbor for $7. Bah humbug with some folks. Now, most people aren't like that, and most people, frankly, will celebrate Christmas and enjoy Christmas. However, many who celebrate Christmas will absolutely miss it. That is, miss its significance, miss its importance, its true relevance. For a lot of people, Christmas is... You know, it's an excuse to party or to get a few days off of work or a few days off of school or spend money on a gift or get gifts or indulge in one of our favorite pastimes, overeating. 
That's what Christmas will become for a lot of people, and they'll totally miss it. Imagine what it would be like if it were your birthday, and we invited all of your friends over, and we exchanged gifts with each other, but we never invited you, whose birthday it is, to the birthday party. And we said, hey, we had a birthday party last night for you. You did? How come you didn't invite me? It'd be odd, wouldn't it? Well, that's what Christmas is sort of like for a lot of people. It's Jesus' birthday, yet He's not invited to His own birthday party. Well, let's go back to the first Christmas. And let's look at three groups of people that represent three types of people who missed Christmas when Jesus was born. One was preoccupied. One was paranoid. And the last group were passive. Um, I'm beginning in Luke and then working my way back to Matthew. It might look like we're going backwards, but chronologically we're actually going to be moving forward. These were people who were there when it happened. They heard the news. They got the reports that a deliverer, a Messiah, Jesus, was being born. And though they heard the news, you know what? They missed the really big news. They didn't see the big picture. It is possible to get news and miss the big news. Back in 1903 in December, the Wright brothers took their first flight. It was only 120 feet. But that was monumental news. As soon as they were done, they sent a telegram to their sister Catherine that read simply, We actually flew 120 feet, period. Next sentence, We'll be home for Christmas. That was on the telegram. She rushed it to the editor at the local newspaper. Look at this. Look at this. He looked at it and he said, Oh, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. Yeah, that was news. But the big news that he missed is that mankind had flown. That was monumental. Let's begin in our story, and let's look at a preoccupied businessman, the innkeeper, who incidentally is not mentioned himself in the text, but there's an inference here I want you to notice. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was. While they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Some of us know what it's like when you're trying to find a motel room late at night. you got a car full of kids or you're one of the kids in the car. You've been going all night long. You just want a place to sleep. And you read that dreaded sign, no vacancy. But for this couple, it was far worse. First of all, they were young. Most scholars believe Joseph may have been under 18 or around 18 and that Mary could have been 
15 years old. These were just kids, we would call them, making this journey. Now let me paint the picture. First of all, there was the journey itself, 90 miles by foot, being extremely pregnant. 90 miles, that that would be like walking from here to Espanola. In ancient times, you'd make about 20 miles per day, but the hills around Nazareth are steep and she's very pregnant. So let's say they made about 10 miles per day by foot. That means about a week at least before Jesus was born, every day they were walking. They had to bring their own food, their own supplies, probably bread, a little olive oil. And they made the journey, a long, long journey. Why are they doing that? Well, the text tells us that the Caesar, the big guy in Rome, gave a very unusual directive that turned virtually every resident into a wanderer. And so there were masses of populations being rearranged for a census, it says, to be registered. Why? It was all about money, that's why. It was for taxation. The Roman government knew how to put your tax dollars to work. And first of all, they had to get the money. Somebody had to pay for the Roman road system. Somebody had to pay for the Pax Romana, as we discussed a couple weeks back, that enforced Roman peace that made it easy for people to travel. So the people went to their towns to be registered so that money could be taken out. I heard about a man, he was on vacation, and he heard in Acapulco where he was vacationing, he heard a woman scream, and this guy knew just enough Spanish to recognize that this woman's child had swallowed a coin. He quickly reacted, grabbed the boy by the heels, lifted him up and shook him, and out popped a quarter. She was so grateful. Mil gracias, señor, mil gracias. And she said in her broken English accent, You know just how to get it out of him. Are you a doctor? And he said, No, ma'am. I work for the United States Internal Revenue Service. (laughs) He knew just how to get it out of people. And Rome was like that. They knew just how to get it out of every person, even the poorest of the poor, the peasants like Joseph and Mary. You'll notice in verse 3, That as people traveled, the people went, every one, it says, to his own city. That is their city of lineage, city of origin. And for Joseph and Mary both, since they were related to King David, they would go to Bethlehem, the city of David. Which means every living descendant of David converged upon Bethlehem, that little tiny town outside of Jerusalem. So there were no vacancy signs everywhere. There was no room anywhere. And it says in verse 7 that Jesus was born in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And when you hear the word inn, what do you think of? A hotel, right? A motel. But the inns back then, it was no holiday, I'll tell you that. It was not three stories with a swimming pool and breakfast in the morning. The inns back then were places where caravans would stop. It was like a KOA. It was a campground, quite literally. We we would call it a caravansary because caravans with animals and people stopped. So picture it this way. It was a square enclosure with rooms on all sides, and in the center was a courtyard. 
In the courtyard, animals were kept and fed. And in the rooms, people would stay. You'd pay a fee and you'd sleep in the room. You'd bring your own bedding. You'd bring your own food. No, no turndown service. No free lunch or breakfast or dinner. That was the caravansary. There was no room even in the caravansary. And so Mary and Joseph were turned away and it says Jesus was born in a manger. Now, the innkeeper is not mentioned in the text. There must have been one because usually um, owners were operators. And so there must have been someone who would take people's money and show them the room. So we infer there was an innkeeper. But what is very clear is that no hospitality whatsoever was shown to this young couple. Some of you know from your study of the Bible that hospitality was high on the list. And uh, visitors were never strangers. There was always some room available if you were a stranger. But when common people are inconvenienced, common graces are forsaken. And everybody was inconvenienced. Everybody had to find a place at some town to be registered for this taxation census. So that which is normal and hospitable was forsaken. Matthew Henry comments, This is an example of the corruption and degeneracy of the manners of that age, that a woman in reputation for virtue and honor should be used so barbarously. If there had been any common humanity among them, They would not have turned away a woman in travail out into a stable. Hard to imagine how lonely that must have felt for Mary. Go into a place. I need a room for the night. I'm sorry. No vacancy. We're booked. But there's a pet smart down the street. There's an animal shelter. You can go there. So Jesus was born, it tells us, in a manger, a feeding trough. Some of the margins of your Bible will say. If you're picturing a little wooden crib, throw it out of your mind. A manger was made out of stone, one solid piece of stone, about two feet long, maybe about a foot wide, carved out in the middle, and food, straw, was placed. That's a manger. Most believe that Jesus was born not in a wooden stable. They didn't do that back then. They put animals in caves. So if Jesus was born anywhere, it was in a stone feeding trough inside of a cave, or, I'm going to really shatter the manger scene in your minds now, or, since there was no room in the caravansary, the inn, remember that's the enclosure with uh, a courtyard, the animals were kept in the courtyard, the mangers of the inns were in the courtyard, it could have been that Jesus was born in a courtyard of an ancient caravansary with all the animals where they were feeding. Could have been. Jesus was born. The innkeeper, not mentioned, but obviously present, doesn't seem to be angry, doesn't seem to be greedy, just seems to be very busy and has no time for this baby. Now, I'm bringing this story up here because it does show the attitude of the world toward God. When it comes to spiritual things, and I'll be very direct, when it comes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, most people's response is, bah humbug. And if they're feeling any twinge of conviction at all, they will simply say, must be last night's undigested beef. 
That's the world's attitude. He came into his own, and his own received him not, the Bible says. Even Isaiah the prophet predicted his reception when in Isaiah 53 it says, He is despised and rejected among men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It could be that I'm talking to some here this morning who are extremely busy people. And it's not just because it's Christmas. That's just who you are. You're a busy person. You rush from task to task. You're busy. You're active. Nothing wrong with that. We applaud good hard work. But if you're too busy for God, you're just too busy. You're just too busy. It's possible to be like the innkeeper, too busy to let this baby in. The world is filled with innkeepers. No time to think about a baby. Just a bit of Christmas trivia for you. We have a word in the English language, bedlam, B-E-D-L-A-M, bedlam. It means chaos, confusion. In a very chaotic scene, we'd say, oh, it's, it's bedlam. Did you know that bedlam comes from the word Bethlehem? It's a corruption of the word. Back in the 1500s, there was a hospital in London, England, called St. Mary's of Bethlehem. And I know it's, it sounds cruel, because it is, for a modest fee. By the way, the hospital was a, uh, an institution for the insane. It was an asylum. For a modest fee, people would go there and heckle the inmates. Watch them go nuts, laugh about it, mock them. So it was... It became sort of a night out. Go to dinner and go heckle the inmates at St. Mary's of Bethlehem. Eventually, the the title St. Mary's of Bethlehem became shortened to just Bethlehem. And you can hear the English cockney that would further corrupt the word from Bethlehem to Bedlam. So the term Bedlam became a word synonymous for chaos and confusion, but it originally means Bethlehem. Now, you couldn't have two words further apart than that. Bedlam, Bethlehem. A place of confusion, a place of peace, where the Prince of Peace was born. My question to you, is your life characterized by the word Bethlehem, because Christ is living in you, or Bedlam? Chaos, confusion, activity, busyness, apart from God. This innkeeper missed Christmas, preoccupied. Let's look at a second, this time a politician, a paranoid politician. You'll see why I use that word. Go backwards to Matthew chapter 2. And again, though we're going backwards in our Bibles, chronologically we're moving forward. If the preoccupied businessman was too active, then the paranoid politician was too afraid. And that's why he missed it. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. We have a story here of some wise men and one very unwise king. 
who is troubled by these events. It seems that these people, these wise men as they're called, just sort of appear in Jerusalem suddenly from out of nowhere, but they announce that they've been on a journey. really stirs things up in Jerusalem. Okay, a couple of facts. In reading the text, there's no indication that they were called kings or that there were three of them, right? doesn't say they're kings, calls them wise men. It doesn't say that there's three of them. I believe that there were a lot more than that. I think there was a whole small army contingent of people. But the reason we think there were three is because of that Christmas carol back in the 1800s, We three kings of Orient are. So we think, well, there's got to be three because the Christmas carol says so. But the text doesn't say so. They're called wise men. The Greek word magoi, magoi. Some translations, magi. We get words like magic from it. Majestic from it. Magisterium from it. Magi, wise men. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that they were a priestly caste of Medes who came from Mesopotamia, Babylon, Iraq, we would say. They made a long journey from Iraq to Jerusalem. History shows that they were part of the court of Nebuchadnezzar hundreds of years before. He had a whole court filled with wise counselors. They were principally dream interpreters and astrologers. They watched the stars. There was a lot of magic and incantations in their practice. But the Bible tells us that at one period of time, there was a supervisor over these wise men in Babylon by the name of Daniel, who loved God and who gave direct predictions of the coming of a deliverer, the Messiah. And it's my belief that it was Daniel who hundreds of years before passed on knowledge and information about the coming of a Jewish leader and may have even told them about a prophecy in the book of Numbers. Listen how interesting this prediction is. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. This was a magisterium of court personnel who were, we'd call them kingmakers, kingmakers, a magisterium. I don't picture them on camels, even though the manger has the camel with the kings. Probably they rode on Arabian steeds, the finest horses, and had an entourage, as I said, a small army with them. They came, they said, to worship him. But because they came, because of who they were, no wonder verse 3 says Herod was troubled. Herod was troubled. It means he was panicking, would be the word, agitated, perturbed, really bent out of shape. Why do you suppose? What made Herod so antsy? Here's why. Because of the phrase they use. Hey, we're looking for this baby called the king of the Jews. Ooh, he did not like that because that's the title he gave himself, even though he wasn't Jewish. Now, did you know that Herod was not Jewish? He was Idumean. He was an Edomite. His ancestry came from east of the Dead Sea. And the only reason he was in charge is because his dad, Antipater, 
uh, had done some favor for Rome. And so Julius Caesar gave Judea to his family to rule over. And now Herod the Great, Antipater's son, is in control. And he gave himself the title, the King of the Jews. And it's a title he guarded with all of his life. In fact, he would kill anyone who would rival or compete with his throne. Any hint of competition would be immediately exterminated. For example, he killed one of his wives who had royal bloodline. He killed his brother-in-law and he killed his two oldest sons so that they could never occupy his throne. He was paranoid. He was cruel. In fact, when he was sick and on his deathbed, he ordered the imprisonment of all the notable citizens of Jerusalem and said, the moment I die, kill them. Because he said, nobody will cry at my funeral. Nobody will shed a tear at my death. But I want to make sure there are tears in Jerusalem when I die. Kill them all. Well, there was a famous saying going on 2,000 years ago in those parts. This is how the saying went. It is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. And now you can see why. He doesn't want any competition. He doesn't want to lose control. And folks, there are Herod types still with us. They won't let God interfere with their personal kingdom. They don't want to lose control. They're in charge. And God is fine as long as God doesn't invade my space. I read about a woman and she said, I have my career and I have my church. And as long as my church doesn't disagree with my career and my choices, I'll keep going. See, God was simply someone added to her life, but she did not want to lose control to that God. Here's what's interesting, however, about Herod the Great. really wasn't all that great. Is In verse 7 and 8, he announces his motive about finding Jesus. Look what happens, verse 7. Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Herod the Great claimed to be a worshiper of Christ claimed to be a worshiper of the Lord. He wasn't, was he? He was a false worshiper, right? It really was all about Herod. He had no intention. History shows, the rest of the story shows how he kills the babies of Bethlehem. He wanted to get this competitor out of the way, but he couches it saying, I worship God. There's a lot of Herods in pews today. You might be thinking, I'm glad we don't have pews here, we just have chairs. <laughs> you know what I mean. A lot of guys like Herod the Great claim to be worshipers of God. Oh yeah, I love God. I love Christ. But at home, they're wife abusers, child abusers. They're consumed and controlled by drugs. They're living lives of immorality, all the while saying, I worship God. Truth be told, for a lot of people, in the name of God, it's really all about them. A lady answered a knock on her door. She heard it loud and clear. 
She answered the door, and there was a man who stood in front of her, the very sad expression, and he said, I'm here to take up a collection of money for one of our poor, unfortunate neighbors. The husband lost his job, the kids are hungry, the utilities have been shut off, and if they don't get rent by this afternoon, they're going to be evicted from their apartment. She said, I'd be glad to help out. I'd be glad to give some money. But who are you? He said, I'm the landlord. You see, it wasn't about the couple. It was about him. It's about his bottom line. It's about his money. He was the landlord. That represents a lot of people. Life is really all about them. And so this innkeeper and this politician, they both missed Christmas. Let's look at a third, and we'll close with this. As our story continues in Luke chapter 2, we have some clergymen, some passive theologians who are just plain lazy, apathetic. Now pick it up back in verse 4. And when he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, some of these were Pharisees, some were Sadducees, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Notice this. So they said to him. Now this is amazing. They knew exactly and could say it immediately. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Amazing. I say amazing because of what they knew, but what they did not do. They knew a lot, but they didn't do anything. They knew, for example, that the people of Israel had a deep messianic expectation. They wanted a deliverer. They knew that. They also knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They knew that. They also knew that a prophet predicted where they were, the Messiah was to be born, and could quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, verbatim. There's no indication that they had to say, well, just a minute, um, let me go look it up in my concordance, or let me get on my computer, Libronics, and figure this out. Just instantly, verbatim, they could quote a, a prophet who had written eight centuries before. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They knew it. Here's my question. Here's my amazement. Why didn't they go to Bethlehem and check it out? You know, it's only five miles from Jerusalem. It's really the outskirts of Jerusalem. I bicycled to Bethlehem before and back. It's easy. If these theologians knew so much, why didn't they do anything to just say, okay, let's just send somebody over there to see if it's him? No indication that they did that. It's also amazing because they were talking to wise men, magi, magisterium, who had traveled hundreds of miles for at least many months across vast desert from Iraq all the way down. They had spent money and time and energy, and these theologians couldn't even get up on their feet and go to Bethlehem and check it out. You know, some people think that knowing the Bible is enough. Having all the right answers is enough. Quoting the text is enough. Analyzing the text is enough. Knowing the original languages and how to parse and diagram and outline and exegete is enough. And so they will quote and study and analyze and parse and do everything but respond in obedience to the biblical text. 
That is this group of professional theologians. They knew so much and they become hardened to it. There's a text in Amos chapter 6 where the prophet had this type of people in mind. He said, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. They'd been so familiar with spiritual truth. It didn't hit their hearts anymore. I was reading a, I think it was a pastor or a theologian. I think it was in Britain. He was talking about the sad state of the church in his country. He said this, We have been inoculated with a mild form of Christianity so as to render us immune from the real thing. Ouch. Quite a diagnosis. We've been inoculated with a mild form of Christianity. We're immune from the real thing. That could be said of a lot of people. Listen, churchgoers and Bible quoters, do you have a passion for God? Do you hunger for God? Do you long to be in His presence and know His peace? Or is this church thing just becoming routine? It's just something we do. It's good for the kids if we do it. And we lose the passion. Now you might counter that in your own thinking and say, well, I'm not a fanatic about my religious convictions. Okay, I can buy that. I would agree that blind fanaticism can be dangerous, but you know what? At the same time, cooling down a fanatic is a lot easier than warming up a corpse. And there comes a time for every person who claims to know God or worship God or know the Bible to take spiritual inventory and say, how real is this to me? How authentic is this to me? Do I just know stuff? Or do I know Him through the stuff that I know? So there was no room in the end. There was no room in the court. There was no room in the religious system of that day. And I venture to say it's still the same today. Did you know there is no room for the real Jesus Christ in religious systems, even in Christendom today? Oh, yeah, Jesus is okay as long as all roads lead to God. As long as Jesus is just a good teacher and a moral example, great, you can buy that. But the minute the real Jesus steps off the pages of the Bible and says, unless you're born again, you'll never go to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Whoa, I got no room in my inn for that. No room in my political system for that. No room in my religious outlook for that. It seems that the only place that there would be room for Jesus was on a cross. Yeah, there's room for him there. Put him there, the religious people said. Get rid of him. We liked him as a baby, but not this. And yet from that cross, from that place that looked so horrible, so horrendous, so alienating and isolating, from there he was able to say, Father, forgive them and grant peace through his forgiveness. Let's not miss Christmas. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss the big story in the midst of all of these words that we read every year. It was the week before Christmas at this one particular church 
the adults were there, all the kids were there as well. And they were singing and it got to the favorite Christmas carol of a young boy and his sister. They were singing loudly, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And they came to that phrase and he said, singing loudly, sleep in heavenly beans. Well, his sister was there and heard it, turned to him and said, it's not beans, it's sleep in heavenly peas. Well, they both missed it, didn't they? They both got it wrong. We know it's peace, that inner tranquility. Tranquility that the babe was to sleep in heavenly peace. Let's not miss the peace. Are you missing the peace of Christmas because you're missing the Christ who brings the peace? All of these three heard the news and missed the big news. Let's pray. Lord, the big news, the good news is that a God stepped out of heaven, born of a virgin, at just the right time. And though was missed by some, was found by others, understood by others, received by others. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Lord, I pray that this Sunday before Christmas, some here would receive you. As we're closing this service, as we're praying with thoughts focused on what we just heard, and maybe some of us are dealing with a feeling inside of our own minds that is disturbing because we know that we're not right with God, and we know that we should surrender our lives to God. But we haven't done it. We've resisted. And yet that feeling is there right now. Don't dismiss it. Don't say bah humbug. Don't say just a bit of last night's undigested beef. But take a step further with that conviction. And receive right now where you're at the Savior, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born, died, and rose, and thus is alive to change your life today.